Welcome to episode four of A Just Transition, brought to you by RBS International. My name is Tim Phillips. Oh, welcome back, everyone. We hope you're enjoying our podcast so far. And if you are, do remember to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. We're on most of them. And also, leave a review so other people know what we're doing. Thanks very much for all the positive reviews so far. We really appreciate it. And, of course, welcome back to my co-host, Bradley Davidson, ESG leader, RBS International. Bradley, hello. Hi, Tim. Now, Bradley, remind me, well, remind the audience as well, what is a Just Transition all about? Yes, I'd hope you remember. So for our listeners, we've launched a new podcast to bring together industry leaders as we discuss how private investment can tackle society's greatest challenges. An important topic as we head to COP26 in just a matter of weeks. We will explore a different topic each month and hope to share open and accessible conversations about the challenges and opportunities presented by ESG. We don't claim to have all the answers, but we're pleased to have you with us on this journey. Now, Bradley, today's discussion, I think it's a little bit different, isn't it? What's our topic today and who's our guest? Yes, we're always trying to bring diverse opinions and viewpoints to this podcast. So I'm pleased to introduce Leslie Gent, Managing Director and Head of Responsible Investing at Coots. Leslie is going to help us explore the true impact of responsible investment, as Bloomberg predicts that global ESG assets are on track to exceed 53 trillion by 2025, representing more than a third of the 140 trillion projected total assets under management. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So let's dive in. Coots recently became the UK's largest private bank and wealth manager to achieve B Corp status and has a programme called Responsible Investing. Leslie, why is responsible investment important to Coots? Well, first of all, responsible investing for us is a bit more than just a program. For us, it's our investment philosophy. It's something that we consider across all of the assets that we manage on behalf of our clients. So what is it and why is it important? Well, for us, it's very simple. It means that in addition to considering financial matters when we're making investment decisions, we're also considering the impact that these investments might have on the environment, on society. We're also considering, are the companies well-managed? Is there good governance behind them? So it's that kind of holistic approach that goes a little bit beyond traditional financial analysis. Why are we doing it? Very simply, we think it's the right thing to do. But more importantly, we genuinely believe by managing these environmental, social and governance issues, it will deliver long-term shareholder value. Leslie, normally on a just transition, we focus on asset management. And we're talking to you today about your behaviour as an asset owner. Is there much that asset managers can learn from this? A great question. Yeah, we're very much a hybrid. So we call ourselves an asset manager, Mm. but we have attributes that are more similar, as you said, to an asset owner. And maybe I should just explain a little bit. We tend to invest as a multi-asset global investor. So across equities, across bonds, government bonds, credit, And we implement our portfolio by investing with other investment managers' funds. And so, yes, there is something I think that asset managers can learn from us because so much of what we're trying to do within our responsible investing program is actually drive change within the asset management industry. And so we do look for quite a few things from the asset managers that we work with. You know, first of all, we believe that the industry is required or needs to do more in terms of driving change. And that means we expect our managers to be active shareholders so that they're actively voting 
at AGMs, that they have a program of engagement with the companies that they invest in on material issues. So those are sort of like minimum standards, and we expect that of all asset managers And we give them a hard time when they're not doing it to sort of the standards that we expect. I think the other thing that we would like to see, because we're talking about just transition, is that asset managers have made net zero commitments, but not just the commitment, that they've actually have started to think about the framework and how they're going to align their portfolios for a a lower carbon economy. So we're working with the whole industry, essentially, to get them to understand we all need to work together and we have a lot more influence if, in fact, we put our voices together to drive change. Bradley, you work a lot with the asset management industry. Is this a path that they're on? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the key bit Leslie mentioned is it's great to see asset managers come together and set these long-term targets, whether we're looking at that 2030, if we're talking about being Paris aligned, and then 2050 for net zero. But really, it's now the time for the market to look at those incremental steps and really outline how individual asset managers are putting this into action. It's great to have the talk and it's absolutely the right thing that asset managers are setting these aspirational targets. But the hard work almost starts now. So how do you develop that? We're seeing increasing numbers looking at science-based targets, which is brilliant to see. And it's something that we're looking at as an organization. And so really the next stage is developing that plan and evidencing to a range of stakeholders that actually are working towards that target to make sure that we don't simply fall foul of not greenwashing necessarily, but setting targets without delivering or understanding the work that is required to get there. Now, Leslie, you talked about standards when you're engaging with asset managers, and we've spoken about your responsible investment and the importance that holds at Coots. How do you define responsible and what rules do you use for investment when you are looking at that strategy? Yeah, good question. And uh, we have a lot of rules. I'm not going to go through them all, but maybe just to outline some of those minimum standards. I talked earlier about stewardship. That's clearly a minimum standard. We expect all of our asset managers to be voting and engaging with companies. We're even today looking more microscopically around how are they engaging around climate change. So there's minimum standards like that. There are certain things that we're looking at in terms of what we call unsustainable activities. And it doesn't mean we won't invest with a manager, but we'd like to understand, for example, for a a UN Global Compact violation, why they think it's okay to support that company. You know, when these are extreme or severe violations, uh, we'd like to understand that better. So again, minimum standards around some of these activities that are really quite questionable, both from a sustainability perspective, but even from a sort of a moral or ethical perspective. And then, of course, we're doing a lot with the managers on climate change. Uh, You talked earlier about net zero. What we're really looking for from them is credible trajectories that work depending on the areas that they're investing in, their sectors or their asset classes. So the list goes on and on. And frankly, it's always changing. And it just allows us to have an open, transparent dialogue with managers so we can understand what they're trying to achieve and they can understand what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly interesting to understand those minimum standards when you're trying to create rules in an ever-changing landscape, and especially as technology and understanding of particularly climate change continues to develop. If we look at those that are getting it right, 
can we see specific outcomes? Is there a shift towards certain technologies or types of assets that we're seeing as a result of a robust ESG strategy? So I think that will depend <laughs> on the approach, right? So that sort of shift to positive outcomes, it does depend on the approach that the manager is taking, right? So clearly for asset managers that have funds that have a defined impact associated with their objective, then yeah, we can see actually some really good progress. And they're sort of at the one spectrum, I suppose, the sort of extreme spectrum that really is investing in the solutions and helping to really fund the change that we need to see or the technologies that we need to see. The other side of the spectrum, which is probably more where we sit, which is the sort of integration, impact is more a result of what we're doing. It doesn't necessarily start first, but we measure it and we report on it. And I think that's important. And I think there is obviously lots of reputational risk associated with greenwashing, for example. So, you know, the one way to manage that is to be very clear around what you're trying to achieve, and then demonstrate it by reporting on what you actually have. Doesn't mean you need to hit those numbers, but you need to be transparent about all of that. Leslie, you talked about having a lot of rules and the fact that they're constantly changing. And to pursue the sort of strategy that you're doing, clearly there are some things that are out and there are some things that are absolutely in when it comes to investing. But most stuff is somewhere in the middle. So how do you create these rules and these principles that can capture the nuance of what it means to invest in this sector? So that's a Good question and a tricky question. So good one. (laughs) Um, So what I would say is, and I keep coming back to engagement, Mm -hmm. because that's the one fluid element of the process that allows us to adjust, to accelerate, and in some cases to change direction, depending on what's going on in this incredibly complex area of sort of responsible investing or, or impact. So that is the one lever that gives us a great deal of flexibility. You know, some of the other rules, you know, I talked about exclusions policies earlier, sort of alluded to them. They're a blunt instrument Mm -hmm. and it's sort of difficult to change quickly. You know, once you sort of said, I won't invest in this, it's kind of hard to next week say, "Mm, I've changed my mind. Now I'm going to. So you have to sort of think about the tools that are more flexible and those that are more blunt and just give you a, a very defined outcome and then balance that. I always say what's the most interesting about this work that we're doing is you have to be adaptable, Mm. you have to be flexible, and you have to be constantly learning and changing. So if we had this conversation in six months time, I'd probably be talking about something entirely (laughs) different and you'd be asking different questions. And that's where this industry is right now and, and how it's changing. Something I I want to ask both of you about, as Leslie's talked about engagement, we talk about cooperation in an industry that is marked by quite fierce competition. How do we cooperate as a group so that we don't fall foul of the problems of greenwashing or carbon leakage or just disinvesting from something that someone else will pick up the investment in? Bradley, you go first. Collaboration is incredibly important to ESG. And actually, if you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, number 17 is partnership to reflect the fact that we need to come together. I think as an industry, we haven't suddenly become scientists. And so for me, 
following the science mm-hmm. is incredibly important, both on the environmental side, but also when we're looking at social development. The first step that I would say to our customers is really look at what alliances or groups there are that exist within the market that you can specifically join. I think by being part of these alliances, so the Net Zero um, Asset Owner Alliance or Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, a great way is to set a target that is in line with your peers. And then through that channel, work with those members to really outline those individual next steps. And I think that's where we'll see these alliances and these groups move towards. It's been incredibly positive, actually. I think if we look at the collaboration, we're doing the right things and everyone has not forgotten that we're competing, but decided that there is something greater than our immediate competition on a financial aspect that we need to tackle and that we play an incredibly huge role within. And so actually, if you look at climate change, which clearly is only part of ESG, I think it's a really good example of how we are doing this and how we're coming together. And then, of course, I can't mention climate change without mentioning COP26. (laughs) Really, another part of collaboration for our customers is that public versus private investment collaboration and actually making sure that we're being the most efficient we can with the capital that exists. So we're looking at public policymakers to identify where private investment is needed the most and where we can fill the gap. And actually, we need that collaboration to continue. And I'm hoping through the development of the EU social taxonomy, which is starting to come together, that we'll bring that into the social aspects as well. But I think we're doing it right. We recognize we don't have all the answers. And that's not just us saying that. That's many of us here. And as Leslie said, we can't let perfection stand in the way of progress. There's an immediacy here. And so it's making sure that you're in line with your peers, not only from an individual perspective, but to look at that societal challenge that we face. How do you approach this at Coots, Leslie? Bradley has said this brilliantly, and most of what I'm going to say is a bit of a repeat, but the collaboration is absolutely critical in terms of what we're doing. The Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, we've joined that, and IIGCC, they have been really useful organizations for us. We can learn best practice. We can understand where others in the industry are are struggling, where others have made breakthroughs. It's been brilliant. And it is true, you know, this hasn't been the way the industry has historically operated. So it's quite rewarding to work in such a collaborative way to drive important change, real world change. And yeah, it's absolutely critical. He is good at saying things sometimes, isn't he, Leslie? Yeah, he's good. Yeah. <laughs> Only occasionally. and leslie as bradley mentioned earlier we are recording this in the run-up to cop 26 on all the news programs at the moment it's on everybody's minds so we're asking all our guests before cop 26 the same two questions now my question to you is in a perfect world if you could get anything you wanted from cop 26 what would that be? I don't know that I can give you a brief answer because I kind of want it all. Mm. Because you did say perfect world. And we know it's unlikely what we get out of COP26 is perfect. But there are some really big commitments that were made at the Paris Agreement. And a lot of those haven't been achieved, right? So the commitment to $100 billion per annum from sort of developed nations per annum that hasn't been hit in any single year since 2015 at the Paris Agreement. It'd be good to see those prior commitments actually delivered. And at the same time, we're seeing great progress from some countries, but we really need 
every country to step up and do as much as they can as quickly as possible. So yeah, it's quite aspirational. Now, I'm always left with the cynics for you. In a real world, what do you think you'll get? Oh, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> you know what? If I just minimize and say, what's the one thing that I really think we need to get agreement on? And it's a tiny thing. We need the agreement on the phase out of coal. It's the biggest emitter, but we also need that agreement with appropriate concessions for emerging or developing nations where their dependency on coal is quite high. So it can't just be a blunt instrument, but even if we just get that one agreement, that's a huge step forward. Well, Leslie, I hope you get at least the one thing that you want from COP26 and hopefully a lot more as well. Thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us today. If you've been listening to A Just Transition, we are going to put out our next episode after COP26. So we'll be digesting what does happen from that. And I hope that all of us get the things that we're wanting. Uh, There's a lot of us have quite high hopes for it. So let's hope they are delivered. But meanwhile, from Bradley, thank you very much, Bradley, again. It's been great. Thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners for sticking with us. And from me, Tim Phillips, we will see you next time and goodbye.